Welcome to the Agents of Innovation podcast, where we feature conversations with entrepreneurs, philanthropists, and artists. Hello, and welcome back to the Agents of Innovation podcast. I am your host, Francisco Gonzalez, and I want to thank you for joining us here on episode 59. This one features an interview with Nathan Bond, the CEO of Rifle Paper Company, and they are one of the hottest lifestyle brands around today. Nathan and his wife, Anna, started this company 10 years ago now, so this is their 10-year anniversary we are approaching, and uh, they've just they just really taken off. Almost 200 employees, uh, $25 million a year in business, and I'm telling you, if you see a girl with a little stationary pad or an iPhone case that's got a really cool design, it's likely it's from Rifle Paper Company. Their uh, headquarters are here near where I live in Winter Park, Florida, and they also have offices in New York. And we're going to hear a little bit more about what they're up to, but they have just become a national and in some ways a global brand. So we're going to hear about the what I would like to call the organic rise of Rifle Paper Company because of how they started. Um, I would say it's a little non-traditional, but you know what? The more we hear about these stories of entrepreneurs, the more we realize a lot of hard work, a lot of creativity, a lot of ingenuity uh, goes into these great entrepreneurial successes. So in some ways, the non-traditional path seems to be the traditional path. That's <laughs> um, what I'm discovering. But hey, I want to thank you for joining us. At the end of this episode, we're going to hear a song from Nathan called I Belong to You, which is actually part of a band he was part of called Band Marino. So we're going to hear a little bit uh, from Nathan as well musically. Uh, but I want to just uh, pause here and let you know that, you know, we actually recorded this interview with Nathan, I believe it was in late February. And, you know, sometimes I put a, a few interviews together with different people, and I do them a few weeks before I actually release them. Part of that is so that you, the you listener, can hear uh, these things without too much time delay. I try to put about two new episodes out per month for the Agents of Innovation podcast. But in the time that I was uh, doing that, uh, um, Nathan and his wife, you know, they went through a little bit of a challenging time. Uh, first, uh, Nathan's uh, mother passed away, and um, you know she was dealing with uh, with cancer, and it was it was really uh, a really tough loss there for the family. And uh, it was a beautiful service, and a, she had a beautiful send off. And uh, the woman, uh, from everything I can tell, listening to all of her friends and family and all the people who, who knew her from church and other things, I mean, this woman just seemed like a saint and um, really just uh, blessed to have met her on a couple of occasions. Wish I would have gotten to know her better. But um, Nathan is a dear friend, and, uh, you know, I was uh, able to at least meet his mother on a couple of occasions. And while that was going on, Anna was actually about eight and a half months pregnant, um, and only a couple weeks after his mother passed away, Nathan and Anna celebrated the birth of their third child. So we want to wish them a congratulations as well. They, they have their hands full with a business that is booming and a family that is booming. So uh, congratulations to Nathan and Anna. And they seem to just have had a wonderful foundation with their families that they have and a lot of things are built on solid foundations, and I think that's a lesson we could learn from them. Um, but there's a lot of challenges in life, too, a lot of things that come up unexpectedly. 
And um, there's a lot of things that, you know, people in the entrepreneurial world, uh, they're human beings too, and they have to deal with things. So um, I wanted to just uh, say that note and just know that when you're hearing a few things, uh, Nathan has already had his third child. We referenced uh, Anna being pregnant in the interview, Uh, but it's um, really a beautiful story of Rifle Paper Company, and I hope you check them out. Also, be sure, if you haven't yet, please uh, subscribe to the Agents of Innovation podcast on iTunes, uh, Apple Podcast. You can also listen to us on Stitcher or SoundCloud, which you may be listening on one of those platforms. We're also on Facebook and Instagram and Twitter, so find us there, and everything can be found at agentsofinnovation.org, where we also put a blog post up about each episode. In addition, if you haven't written a review yet on iTunes, for the Agents of Innovation podcast, please do that. We're trying to get to 50 reviews by the end of 2019, and we're just ticking up slowly. I think last I saw we were at 25. So thanks so much for listening to the Agents of Innovation podcast. I really hope you enjoy this interview and learn a thing or two from Nathan Bond. I want to welcome Nathan Bond to the Agents of Innovation podcast. Nathan, thanks for being with us today. Thanks for having me. Well, uh, Nathan, I I don't know, you and I probably met about four years ago or so, become good friends since, and um, actually claim to fame for me, I had dinner with you. This was the last dinner. This was the first time we met. We had dinner, and it was your last dinner before your son, your firstborn son, was born. And that was, uh, that was pretty exciting because uh, I didn't hear from you for a few days. And then somebody else, a mutual friend, said, oh, did you know his son was born that, uh, that next day? I said, I didn't. So anyway, that's probably why you were busy. But anyway, now you have uh, two children and a third one on the way. And it's exciting because you and your wife, Anna, actually started uh, a company together, Rifle Paper Company. Nathan is the founder, co-founder with his wife, and, and he's the chief executive officer. She's the chief creative officer of Rifle Paper Company, which has just become a huge business. And Nathan, by the way, when before we met, I should tell you that I had not heard of Rifle Paper Company because I am not a 25-year-old girl who likes stationery and notebooks <laughs> and all these sorts of things. I know you guys have a lot more than that, but um, I was going to meet with you, and one of my uh, colleagues at the organization I was with, then they I sort of had given a few people access to my calendar, and they had... Uh, seen on my calendar that I was having dinner with you. And they said, is that the guy with, because they saw Rifle Paper Company too. And they said, you're going to meet with the CEO of Rifle Paper Company? Oh my God, I I buy all their products. Um, And then like two or three girls in the office started talking about it and they were so excited about it. And um, so anyway, I said, well, this must be a a more important company than uh, I was aware of. So anyway, uh, that was kind of cool. But tell me, Nathan, um, I know you, uh, started, uh, you know, uh, you were actually before you were the CEO or founder of uh, Rifle Paper Company. Uh, you were just a college student with a rock band, <laughs> That's uh, right. and in fact, you were the lead singer of a band called Band Marino. Uh-huh. Uh, tell me a little bit more about that time. Oh wow, there's a lot to talk about. Uh, uh, I mean, it was really something we started when I was in high school. I was writing um, some kind of goofy tunes decided to, you know, I wanted to be a songwriter for a living, so started a band with my best friend from growing up, he was one years old, I knew him since I was one years old, we actually met in a church nursery, you know, our, our parents met, and um, we, uh, he had never actually played any instruments before, and so um, somebody asked me to play a gig, and um, 
I said yes, and then I called him on the phone and said, uh, hey, do you want to start a band today? And we have a gig on Saturday. And he was like, sure. And so I drove to his house and taught him to play some keyboard licks. And, and how old were you then? I think I was 17. Okay. And so I taught him to play a few kind of keyboard licks that were just kind of funny, and we went and played the show with about three days preparation and wrote some songs and just had kind of fun with it. Later he went on to be our banjo player and... Uh, I don't know, it just kind of took off, so it was a, it was kind of a, uh, I don't know, funny origin. Had you always been, uh, how, how long had you been a musician or played music? I don't know how long I'd been playing, um, probably since middle school, um, played guitar, uh, so not really super long, I kind of got started a bit late, but um, I think by the time I was 17 I was writing a ton of songs and I was playing with a couple of different groups of guys. So I was actually in another band at the time that didn't really go anywhere, but it was funny that the kind of joke band I started with my best friend was the one that kind of started taking off. Um, and we called it Band Marino because we were on their way to our first show and there was a Dan Marino commercial. He was like a, the host of, you know, I don't know, the, the spokesman for a car dealership or something. And we were like, all right. Isotoner clubs or yeah, something. something yeah, something like that. <laughs> well, uh, you and I share a passion for the Miami Dolphins. Uh, and passion is, I put that in quotation marks because sometimes it's a, it's a devastating uh, oh, yeah. loss every it's, weekend. It's um, terrible. Or at least half the weekends. Uh, but Dan Marino, hey, we, we share a great passion for him and... Uh, and and uh, what he did for the Miami Dolphins for so many years. <laughs> they just could never win the big one. No. So um, anyway, uh, but that's cool that you named the band Band Marino in that option. So you then went off. Um, so you grew up uh, where? I grew up here in Orlando. Yeah, In Orlando. And then you, you went uh, down the road here to University of Central Florida, mm-hmm. um, home of the national champions, right? Yeah, right. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, it's almost two-time national yeah, champions. Yeah, yes. Almost two-time national <laughs> champions. Uh, well... You went there, and then um, you were studying, and then you were continuing to play music. And, and uh, tell me, tell yeah, me. Yeah, I was steps. getting more. I was getting more serious about music at the time. I was working on a score for an independent film that um, actually debuted at South by Southwest, and I was also uh, recording. I think we were recording our record already um, at that time. Maybe yeah, we were. We were recording our our first album at the time. The band was. Um, picking up some steam, we were getting asked to go on some somewhat larger tours, nothing huge, but you know opening for um, regionally for larger acts and um, and we were building up somewhat of a following and uh, I just decided to pursue it full time. I thought it was kind of the window was there, and I, I needed to kind of follow it through and see where it went, so I dropped out of college and went on tour for about four years. Wow, four years um, all over the country. Where'd you go? Um, you know, it was mostly southeast, um, east coast, southwest, midwest. So we never really made it all the way to the west coast. It was always kind of that corridor, um, and we we had a pretty you know decent following in the southeast and in Texas, and we kind of had a little thing going there. Well, I, I noticed that Rolling Stone magazine uh, called one of your songs the song. This is a long name for a song, by the way. <laughs> the song is called "Every Time I Make a Girl Cry, I Know I've Done My Job." <laughs> uh, so you got you got some humor with the band Marino and a song titled like that. Well, Rolling Stone called this song one of the best songs on MySpace. <laughs> so whatever that means to people in 2019, um, and for you young kids out there, there was this thing called MySpace that predated Facebook. But actually for me, I remember at that time, sort of late 90s, early 2000s, MySpace was a place where you can get um, music. You can just listen. If you liked a band, maybe you saw them at a club or something, 
you could just, oh, go to our MySpace page, and there would be clips, and you wouldn't really have to pay for it. You didn't own the music, but you could at least go to this website and pay for it. Or, I'm sorry, listen to it without paying for it. Um, so anyway, yours was one of the best songs on MySpace, and people kind of joke about MySpace now because right. it's gone. It's we joked about it then too, actually. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> but it's uh, it's kind of cool that hey, Rolling Stone uh, 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 named you that. Uh, so anyway, you then go on, and somewhere in this time period, you meet your uh, uh, what, who is now your wife, Anna. Mm-hmm. Tell me about meeting Anna and uh, and and then what she was doing. Anna was uh, working at a magazine. She moved here for a job, and we just kind of met through kind of mutual friends and a network there and kind of immediately hit it off, um, started dating. She was she started doing freelance design, and actually she was doing a lot of her design at the time for the band. So she was designing all our band posters, all our T-shirts, all the kind of... And she was doing a lot of rock posters for bands all around town, too. I mean, we were like... We were in the scene, you know? We were... at bars downtown all the time. And so you were the hip, cool people. You know, we were the, the I don't know. The if we're, artsy people. I don't know if we were hip or cool, but we were certainly um, around, you know, the music scene here in town, uh, deeply rooted in it. And so she was doing work, you know, 50, club. the big clubs were paying her 50 bucks to make these absolutely gorgeous and amazing posters for their shows. So she was using that as a time to kind of experiment with styles, I think. And actually, in a lot of ways, I think the right the company rifle um is the fruits of some of that kind of experimentation she wasn't getting paid hardly anything but i think the experience kind of helped her develop some different ideas and then turn it into something that um was maybe the beginnings of of the company we started together so uh for our listeners uh the few of you out there who aren't yet familiar with rifle paper company it's an international stationery and lifestyle brand that's sort of the quick uh it's it's headquartered in winter park florida just right here in the orlando area uh, but it has now reached over five thousand retail locations. Or read, um, I think that something like that five six thousand doors uh, yeah. internationally. So. And of course, a huge uh, presence. A lot of uh, today, you know, in, in this day and age, a lot of that is sold online as well, right? Um, sure. Yeah, our own website we sell a lot direct. Um, we have our own storefront here in Winter Park, and then a lot of it's wholesale. So great. Well, uh, so so as we think about that, we put that into context uh, today. Uh, we're here in 2019. Uh, Rifle Paper Company does $25 million in, in business each year and has somewhere between 160, 200 employees, depending on the time of year. I know in retail, sometimes it's seasonal. Uh, so that's huge. Uh, and we're talking about a company founded in 2008. Uh, so so let's advance or let's go backwards a little bit. 2009. 2009. This, is your, this is our 10-year anniversary. 10-year anniversary. So, so 2009. So 10 years. I think that's right. Uh, so, so tell me, Nathan, what, uh, where, where did, so, so Anna is the creative, uh, officer, the chief yeah. creative officer. Uh, was it a lot of her designs that were the early part of rifle paper? Oh, well, sure. Yeah. In the beginning she was doing everything, um, on the design and creative side. Um, it was just the two of us. So, um, was, it was going to be her. I have really hardly, I don't really have any visual design skills, um, I, I'm not going to say I don't have an eye at all. Uh, Anna and I are, have always kind of a lot of overlap in sort of our vision for the business, but she's the brilliance. I'm just sort of, uh, I've just sort of helped make the business run well to support her brilliance. So you were in the, you were in this band. It was, you know, Hey, I mean, uh, you were touring, um, you were being called out by Rolling Stone. You were, uh, at least on the road for four years making albums. And then at what point, and then you and Anna were dating, uh, at what point, uh, did she and you decide to start a business, uh, based on her design work? 
Well, I think it was actually connected to our wedding invitation. So we got married, and she did this really cool wedding invitation that was kind of like a band poster, and she painted us into a scene. Um, so it was a very cool thing. That really, uh, I don't know if anyone had really done quite that way before. And it got picked up uh, by a lot of uh, blogs and um, uh, kind of got passed around the internet a bit. And as a result, she started getting more... Was requests. it the highlight of Pinterest? Um, I don't know if Pinterest was... It was really like, you know, Flickr was a big thing. Mm. Blogs were... It was in the beginning of kind of the design blog world, I would say. Um, so we started... She started getting more requests from clients saying, can you do my wedding invitation? Can you do mine? So it, they were kind of coming in organically. I was working on an album at the time and I started helping her with her clients because they were... It was building. She was doing more and then more and then it was sort of building as she would do more. And, post and was this pretty much online. all wedding invitations at the It time? was. At this moment, it was, she was really focused on that because that's where the clients were coming in for. Um, so she kind of started developing this sort of uh, freelance wedding invitation business while I was recording. And I started helping her. And then we just realized, hey, we could turn this style maybe into a full-on brand and get out, you know, not just be limited to wedding invitations and do all sorts of stuff and... Uh, maybe that is a real opportunity here. So Anna went ahead and flew to New York for the National Stage Sharing Show, which she found out existed just know, a week before it started. So she decided to go up and check it out. She walked around, came back, and was like, yeah, I think we can be really successful in this world. There's nothing really like us. Um, I think that everyone will respond really well. We can make our booth look better than most of the booths there. I think we can succeed in this in this world. And so I, I was kind of burnt out anyways, honestly, with the music thing. It's, it's pretty tough business to kind of make it in. Um, and I was like, okay, fine. So I, I, I quit. I you know, told the band, hey, I'm, gonna move, I'm moving on. I, th- I think I just am burnt out. I, I need to move on. And I, started, I went full time with her. And we, within, I don't know, six months, seven months, we had launched our brand with our website, with greeting cards, with different, you know, different product formats. It was pretty amazing. And when you launched your brand, um, I'm assuming you didn't have any kind of storefront or anything. Was it just sort of out of the house? Um, no. Well, when we were doing, when we were building up to the launch, we were working out of our a garage apartment that my, uh, connected to my parents' home. That's where So we, all great businesses start in a garage. Yeah, we know this. Yeah, yeah, kind of. Yeah. And then, but we, by the time the, the website launched and we had our first production run, we actually were... Um, in a little tiny office in Winter Park that's right down the street from our office today. Oh, cool. Yeah. So you, you pretty much started uh, with a with a store then? It wasn't a point. store. It was just a tiny little, little office. A little office. Okay. And um, within a short period of time, we, we'd moved into uh, a nicer office. Yeah, you have a very impressive location now. If anyone is visiting Winter Park, you can stop by the off, the store the storefront there. I know a lot sort of goes on behind the scenes, not part of the actual store with your offices back there. But it's still cool because people who are fans of Rifle Paper Company can come in and kind of check out some of the newest product line. It's very cool, yeah. And they can kind of pop their head and look back into the offices a bit, too. And So it's all kind of together, which is a fun thing. Great. Well, um, Nathan, so this is also – so you guys grew pretty fast. Um, I've noticed over the last few years you've gotten a lot of press. Uh, you continue to get a lot of press. In 2015, uh, Vanity Fair uh, noted that you guys were the most popular stationer on the internet. Um, you've also been featured in magazines like Fast Company, Guarded and Gun, Inc. 5000, and Forbes magazine, which also named you, Nathan, in 2015 as a 30 under 30 in uh, top 30 under 30 uh, in retail. 
so you were so this was a uh, business started sort of around 2009. Uh, so within six years, uh, you're getting all this press and all this notoriety. Um, and now, like we talked about, uh, where your business is even four, almost four years later. So, but tell me in that time, uh, what was what were some of the challenges uh, and and then some of the exciting parts as well of, of growing that business. Well, I mean, the challenges were pl- plentiful. When you're when you're building a business that's growing that quickly, the challenges are a daily occurrence because you're you're constantly kind of having to re I don't know rebuild the business every, every you know every few months and kind of restructure everything and rethink everything and learn all sorts of new things. So it was it's, it was a wild ride to say the the least. Even today, I think that we're kind of in that phase because we're in a new phase where we're trying to professionalize the business and we're hiring our first executive team. We've never had a C-level employee to be other than Anna and myself. So we never went out and hired an executive with experience. We're doing that now, kind of putting together a higher level of leadership. Um, I noticed so, in just the last year you had you hired a, a president. Correct. Yeah, we never had anybody. And somebody like that, that kind of has some experience in the design world as well. Oh yeah, in the retail world and the yeah. kind of lifestyle world. She was at Kate Spade for a long time and Dra- Draper James. And so it's a uh, it's kind of a new. So we're always kind of learning new things. Um, I think um, so. That's a challenge because you kind of have to stay on your toes and pay attention. Um, when we first launched the brand, we didn't know anything about even how to manufacture anything we we uh we we knew nothing about the industry we're getting into we kind of jumped in just assuming we'd figure it out and your products well let's go back to where they're sold i know we talked about the internet we talked about you know your your store at winter park but uh but there's uh, tons of retail places um my my understanding it's it's boutique stores to department stores uh, lots of places in between you can tell me and what do you do on the business side of it well, my role is always changing, so um, that's an interesting. I mean, uh, I've done every role at the company. I would say, other than being a designer, <laughs> exactly. Other than that, um, today I work pretty closely with Anna and our president on any kind of big decisions that need to be made. And I'm also uh, over our uh, warehousing logistics teams, although they're pretty independent and. So I, I don't know. I, I'm always working on. Have you gone out so to, so to in order to be able to get your products in some of these stores around the world, yeah, uh, and in, around the country? Do you, do you, did you go out and, and sort of build those relationships, or how did that happen? So there's different ways to go about it. Trade shows are a big way to get access to customers like that. Get your stuff in front of the right retailers. The other way is to get reps, sales reps, independent sales reps. So we use independent sales reps all over the country. So those are more like contractors? They're commission-based. Yeah. Yeah, So they're out there. They're independent business owners, basically, that wrap a handful of brands, and they go around, and they they build the relationships with the stores, and and you do as well through them, and it's a whole thing. They kind of manage the territory. Um, We also have distributors internationally, so um, you might have somebody that imports a bunch of our stuff into Australia, or, or we do have somebody that imports our stuff into Australia and then sells it and has their own reps and... So it's a it's it's a lot of different ways, and so kind of going forward, as you got so let me talk about a couple of things. One is uh, first as a husband and wife team, what is that dynamic like? I mean, I mean, I know uh, she's more the creative side, you're more the business side. Although it sounds for, from just hearing what you said already, uh, she does have an eye for some good business acumen as she did at that trade show. You seem to also have an eye for some creative sides of things too so but how does uh how does that work uh with 
you know, you're, you two as a, as a team, generally just as business partners, but also how's it like being business partners and being married? Yeah, it's a good question. I mean, I think that you're, you're onto some of it though. One of the reasons it works so well is that even though we have very distinct skill sets, we can kind of speak each other's language. I used to be a songwriter, so I am a creative person that has ta- a specific kind of level of taste. I'm interested in the creative vision of the brand. Anna is obviously, uh, I would say, creative kind of powerhouse, but she's also a very, very in, um, intuitive business person. I mean, she's got great instincts. So the two of us make a good combination because we're very different, but we can kind of come together as well. So it's not like oil and water. Um, how does it work as a married couple? I mean, I, you know, it's, it was hard at first in some ways because... And now with two and a third on the way. Yeah, kids. Yeah, I mean, so I think that we had some experience going in because because she was doing stuff for the band. You know, for, for instance, our CD release show, she did a whole art installation in the entire club, like a cold club downtown. And it was like, it was like, I don't know, 60-foot paper mache, two-headed sea dragon. And this, you know, so we were always doing kind of weird stuff together. So translating that into the business, I think, was a natural thing. But it was hard. You're, you're always, especially when you're working 80 hours a week and trying to build something and you don't have outside funding or a lot of help, you kind of end up talking about it all the time and it kind of becomes the center point of your life. I don't think that was healthy. That was probably the way it was for the first four or five years of the business. It's not really like that anymore. Um, it, we definitely have more of a life balance now. I mean, maybe, yeah, so... Um, yeah, I mean, it's got to be tough to uh, go home and sort of turn off work, right? I think it used to be really hard because we're just, we, I don't know, there was, in that, those first years, especially the, I guess the first three or four years especially, I mean, it's, there's so much pressure because there's all this opportunity, but um, you just have to, you kind of have to do it all, carry all the weight, you know, so um, you end up, you end up just talking about it constantly because you feel like, you feel like it's urgent, you got to get it done, got to get it done. Um, we passed that point at some point where I feel like we were able to kind of be a little more realistic about it and have more of a balance. So I, I actually have no problem turning off now. It's, it's, I, I love turning off and I'm happy to do it at home. So. Yeah. Well, good. Well, uh, so a few years ago, in the last couple of years, um, I understand you also opened a store in New York or is it an office? Not a store, I'm an sorry, office. an office in yeah. New York. Uh, tell me a little bit more about why you made that decision and how it's going. Well, it's been great. The reason we did it was to get access to a certain type of talent faster, um, so especially creative. So there's a lot of creatives in New York, so we can steal them from other companies or they're looking for stuff, um, and we need to have access to the top talent in that area. So really, that was the main reason. Um, it's worked uh, really well. So our president, for instance, lives in Long Island, so she's in back and forth between Florida and New York all the time. She works out of New York sometimes, works out of Florida sometimes. So I think it just helps us get access to talent without having to relocate them. You know, it has that. There's another. There's other other ways we can work with them. Yeah, that's great. Um, well, and 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 is this also? I mean, you're trying to compete with sort of the, the, another level. Correct. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so that that's really great. Well, so let's see. This this started with wedding invitations. Uh, seems like the marriage is going great, uh, <laughs> and the and the business is going great. Um, so you also. Um, the type of uh, company you are, paper company in a sense, uh, but you do other things. I know you have clothing and bags, and tell, talk about some of the other things you guys have expanded into. 
Yeah, I mean we've 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 been in a lot of categories. Um, iPhone cases, right? Yeah, to- yeah. I, I see mean, all those little uh, <laughs> not cool designed iPhone cases. I look and I see that's probably Rifle Paper Company right there. <laughs> it just has a distinctive look to it. Yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. You can tell the look. Um, and everyone's got a phone, so I mean, you're just everyone uses paper for the to, for for now until you know the Green New Deal comes or something. Uh, but, right. <laughs> but everyone uses I paper. Know. I think digital is worse the environment than paper. Actually, <laughs> yeah. so. uh, oh, we I got I got iPhones. You know, mm-hmm. uh, uh, g- girls especially like those little note notepads. Um, all sorts of cool clothing and bag things that go on there. So I mean, you, you've tapped into a market. A lot of people already use the basic of the product. You just brought a nice design to it. Yeah. Um, I mean, it's 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 more thoughtful th- than that. I mean, even I, we take a lot of pride in our forms and the way we design even just the the product itself to be very functional and then and high quality and then of course the design though is what everyone want, is paying attention to. Um, I mean, we, I, it was always a thing from the beginning that we weren't going to just remain a stationary company. I feel like stationary for us was an entry point to get into bigger things and more things. Stationery is always going to be important to the business because it's kind of the anchor. But there's always been we always knew there would be opportunity into many categories. So we've had a lot of fun expanding to new stuff. We have a whole carpet rug collection right now that's one of my favorite things we've ever done. I think it's really cool, and we're going to get more into home. And so what? So um, uh, what percentage of your um, customer base are female? Do you think? Oh, it's 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 massive. I mean, that's our that's our target customer. I mean, men buy our stuff, but they're buying what it kind of things there. do they buy? They're buying stuff for for the correct. Women. Yeah, <laughs> okay. so it's the end user is you know female audience almost almost entirely. Okay, yeah. well, do you guys have do you guys have any thoughts about expanding uh, to another to to try to capture the the other half of the human? I race? mean, I think there's <laughs> enough. I think there's enough opportunity still in the area we're in. We have enough work to do on oh, that you do. end. Yeah. You, so. yeah, you have captured half the human race. So, so I think we got to keep working on that half the human race before we... So speaking <laughs> of, of this globe, um, your products, um, I noticed most of the designs are local, especially to uh, you know Winter Park in New York where you have your, your, your offices. Um, your products, though, uh, do you... Typically, are they made in the USA? Yep. Are they all of, from all over the world? How do you... How do you uh, sort of put that together and then where are they sold? Yeah, good question. Yeah, I mean, we, we do a lot of domestic manufacturing and we do a lot of overseas manufacturing. So it just depends on which product, which format um, makes sense um, to do which way. So um, certain things, um, you know, domestic manufacturing always has the advantage of having a very quick turnaround. You can kind of manage your inventory a little bit tighter. There's, there's major advantages to it. But other things are just inefficient to do here because the 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 skill set's not here or the infrastructure's not here or whatever reason um, certain things are just better other places so we're we're anything we're anytime we're getting into a new format we're kind of looking at all the options trying to figure out what is the best way to put it together yeah because I mean I've talked to a lot of young entrepreneurs people starting business and they have found maybe like a they've partnered with a factory in China or mm-hmm. some other country yep. that can make the products less expensive and I know there's a lot of people that may talk about well is that ethical and all these sorts of things in terms of Sending the jobs overseas, sure, but also, yeah. or, but also, like maybe the wages over there mm-hmm. are less. Um, but but anyway, we hear about that. But um, but a, a lot of companies, I mean, you just got to engage in that way if you're going to bring a low price uh, to the customer here. Um, and then also, uh, with with that being said, there you know now a lot of uh, you know there's a lot of changes in, in tariff laws and mm-hmm. all these, these trade laws that we're seeing, and businesses have to respond to that. 
Um, what have you seen and how, and how are you guys responding? Well, I think that the first question is important, meaning, you, yeah, you want to, if you're working with any factor, you want it to be ethical. Um, that's super important. Um, and there are great, great partners in, internationally to work with in manufacturing. The only, it's not just in America where there's ethical manufacturing happening. So um, I think that's important. You do have to know kind of what you're getting into and who you're working with. But we've, we've been fortunate to have wonderful relationships with our international um, partners and um, really enjoy working with them, really appreciate the job they do. And honestly, they just, on certain things, they have, they're just more skilled. They have better expertise. They're more highly skilled. They have better facilities. Um, and over here, a lot of people aren't interested in doing a lot of that work. Um, manufacturing in the U.S., it's not that we don't have a lot of manufacturing in the U.S. We do. We're just, it's moving into other areas. And that's part of, um, and there's like a big debate about that in a lot of circles that I'm, I, I'm in and read about. Um, so I'm interested in the, in the question. But in our experience, we've just found really wonderful partners to work with. And um, that's always the first thing you're looking for is someone you can trust and do business with. Um, yeah, as far as the tariff laws, obviously that's always going to be a challenge when things are when when we're, the laws are changing and you have to navigate them and it's it's very complex and not necessarily my favorite thing to be dealing with all the time. <laughs> yeah, I bet. I mean, you're trying to run your business, yeah, uh, exactly. So you navigate different laws. Uh, so uh, going forward now, um, what do you see as sort of the future of rifle? As sort of the next steps. Uh, and what you guys are planning to do. I mean, I think it's, a lot of it is continuing to expand into new categories. Um, we have a lot of wonderful licensing partners we're working with right now. We're going to probably do more in licensing, more in the home world. Um, so that's probably number one, is just to expand Rifle to be more of a lifestyle brand. Um, and then as, you, as you're building up, as you mentioned, the talent within Rifle and maybe the higher level positions within Rifle, uh, do you now have other people that are working on sort of some of these uh, new relationships and designs and new uh, sort of areas you're getting into? How much are you involved in that? How much are some of this other uh, high level talent involved? Um, I think it's a group effort. It depends on, um, but hopefully uh, a lot of the, hopefully my, the team I'm bringing in will be leading a lot of that. Well, great. Well, Nathan, this has been uh, really great. I have a few uh, last questions for you. Um, and uh, some of the, let's go back to uh, this. I think it's just an interesting uh, path you took when you were one in a, in a band, but you were in college. And then you uh, said, hey, you know, the band's been successful. So I'm going to take a little time off college, see where this is. Four years later, the band's still going. But then you start this company. And now, you know, we're here and the company's a $25 million a year company, 160, 200 employees, something like that. Um, and no need to go back to college. You're a successful entrepreneur. But um, a lot of people go to college because they want to learn uh, something that they think this degree is going to help them be. Maybe it's an entrepreneur. Maybe it's just going into business, finding a job, whatever. Uh, end of the day, college equals jobs. That's what we're told. Right. Uh, right. For you... You started there, but you didn't finish college, uh, and it shows that you don't you didn't need the degree. But what do, what do you think about a young person coming up today? Maybe they want to, you know, maybe they're inspired by hearing about Nathan Bond and Anna Bond, and your story is, uh, you know, great entrepreneurs here, and they want to do that. Um, where does college come into the equation? What do you think? 
Oh man, I think that's a it's a really important question. I don't think there's any one size fits all answer. I think for some people, obviously, certain fields you got to go get your degree if you're gonna, um, for instance, if you want to teach at university, you got to go get a degree. Um, be a probably doctor. your PhD. Yeah. If you want to be a doctor or a lawyer, you're gonna have to go to law school. If you want to be a lawyer, I think that these are obvious. Um, I don't necessarily think everybody should be going to college, though. Um, and and some people might want to rethink the reasons they're going to college. Um, if you're just going to kind of get a get a degree to where that's on your resume and then find a job randomly somewhere, um, I don't know. We, we hire a lot of people that don't have their degrees and honestly a rifle and we see them move up in the ranks and be successful. I'm not really sure a random college degree would have necessarily helped them that much all the time. It just depends on the person and what they're doing. I tend to think of education more in the sense of um, how is it helping me grow in the way I think? Is it helping me understand how to engage in reality? So it's not necessarily vocational. I think that's part of the mistake we've made is we think of college as a vocational school and maybe college is for something actually more than that. And um, if you're going to a place that's interested in question, deepest questions about the human person and so forth... Um, you know, I mean, I think there's a, there's an interesting, I wish I could remember, there's an interesting website or something about, uh, that talks about this, but there's, so philosophy degrees are actually helping people succeed more in the business world than business degrees. I, I don't remember right, the stats yeah. and all that, but there's something about, you know, you shouldn't study philosophy. What a waste of a time. You know, what are you going to do with that? Actually people that are studying philosophy are having a lot of success in, um, in the business world. So I think that is insightful. It's sort of, maybe it's more about actual education than, um, I don't know. Yeah. And also, um, you know, just because you get a college degree, right. doesn't mean education stops at that point. Right. right? You constantly got to be learning and relearning. And sometimes, especially as the, the sort of world we're moving into with a lot of automation, a lot of people are changing, not just jobs, they're changing careers. Uh, more and more, and I think we're, maybe we're going to see that interesting in the future. Yeah, I think that's right. I think that people should think creatively. I mean, I don't want to, like I said, I don't want to give a one-size-fits-all piece of advice, but I think people should think creatively and about their circumstances. What are they interested in? What are their passions? What are their talents? If somebody has a great idea to go start a business or they have an opportunity to work for some great company and they think they can move up the ranks there, that might be a, those might be better options than going to college. It just depends on what's going on in your life? What are the circumstances? Yeah, for sure. So, uh, as you advanced here, um, you didn't go, you don't have a college degree, but you're now on the board of a college, King's college (laughs) in New York. Uh, tell us a little more about, um, about that. And then also I know you're, you're on the board of, uh, the active Institute, a nonprofit. Um, and so you've been able to engage with, um, great academic environment that a lot intellect the, a lot of these intellectuals you interact with. Um, tell us a little bit about that and anything else that you might be involved with. Yeah, that's interesting. I think that has to do with sort of my. Um, I don't know. Maybe it's a. It's from my point of view. It's the secret to my success on some levels is being interested, not necessarily always tunnel vision on. Um, I don't know, my particular industry or the business world, but thinking about um, the bigger ideas about um, reality, truth, the human person, um, just kind of engaging in the interesting academic debates that are going on and kind of following things. I, I don't know, that kind of, that's what jogs my brain to think differently and creatively, and I think it gives you kind of sometimes a creative edge because not everybody's doing that, and it just helps you to think about your customer in a different way or what you're up to 
make sense of your own vocation, that sort of thing. Um, and I've been fortunate through that to be able to interact with a lot of interesting people. And honestly, some of them I just sought out, sent emails to them or one, called them or called institutions they work for, asked if I could meet up with them. So it was just kind of, you know, just trying to, I don't know, I, I, I like meeting and having dinners with interesting people. That's why you and I met, you know? Yeah, <laughs> of course. <laughs> uh, well, uh, I know, I know also, you know, in those ways, you're also uh, philanthropically helpful to those institutions. But also, uh, I know you and your wife also um, are involved in different philanthropy and, and different causes and things like that. Is there anything you want to talk about specifically? Oh, I don't know. Or the role of, or maybe just the role of um, uh, somebody who's in business also being um, involved in philanthropy? Oh, yeah. Well, I mean, I think it's um, obviously... I, I kind of gristle at the term you gotta give back because I think that presumes you've taken something from society. Like basically mm-hmm. you've you've been really successful in the business world. Now it's time to give back because you stole something from you know, You've so, created a hundred and something right. jobs here. Exactly. I'm not so sure that I like that term, but I do think it's of course everyone's responsibility that is at a level of success to be thoughtful about what they're um what they've been blessed with. So um, yeah, absolutely. I think that's important to think about. And I think it's something we're still trying to figure out. I mean, uh, my wife and I were eating 7-Eleven hot dogs for most of our, most of this run. Um, you know, we, we, it was, it was, it was not exactly, uh, you know, we didn't have any outside investment. So it's not like we came in with a very cushy situation. We were really like just kind of getting by for a long time. Um, so now that we have we you know, resources and we're successful, it's it's something that we're trying to figure out how to be prudent about always and thoughtful about. Um, and in some ways, I kind of view it as one of the most maybe may, maybe the main motivation for continued success in business is is sort of being a good steward of resources. So it's something I think about a lot. It's something I don't have a lot of answers about yet. I'm still thinking through a lot of it. Well, great. Well, you got some time, I think, and. Uh... One of the questions I've been asking probably the last 15 or 20 episodes on my podcast to uh, my guest is a question I got from Senator Ben Sass in his book last year. I read it, The Vanishing American Adult. Um, he says he likes to ask people when he meets them uh, what their first job was. And I thought, well, what a great question for me to ask these entrepreneurs on my podcast here. So uh, what was your first job? And also... Um, you know, things you learned from it, any, anything you still kind of keep with you today? My first job was doing, uh, was a file clerk for my father's insurance business. My father was an insurance agent for Nationwide Insurance and also a bunch of independent agency companies. And I was just a file clerk for him. Um, what I learned from it, from it, oh man, I think I learned I never wanted to be a file clerk. <laughs> I did not enjoy it. <laughs> um, I'm sure you have file clerks now. You know, I don't know. We do actually have a file clerk. This feels like a bit of a dated job. I don't know. Um, I I, I definitely don't. I mean, we we do some minor filing, but I think it's a little different these days. They're putting stuff in Dropbox or something. Right, exactly. So, um, yeah, I don't don't know. I'm sure I learned other things. Uh, I I don't think I was very good at it. I don't think I was a very good employee. Um, I, uh, but I'm sure I'm sure I benefited from being around you know, having a job, being around that stuff. Well, that's good. I well, definitely learned a lot from my father because he was an entrepreneur in his own way. And so watching him, I learned a lot of things not to do and things to do both. Well, great. Well, um, given all of your entrepreneurial experience and, and everything, what uh, sort of lessons learned or anything uh, you've observed from other entrepreneurs that you maybe uh, would like to pass down to our audience? Huh. 
That's an interesting question. Um, nothing's coming to mind. <laughs> I mean, I think that uh, maybe it's back to what I was saying before. Um, I think it's good to read and engage your mind and uh, in in serious and interesting questions about life, not just about uh, not just reading books. Um, about how to make more money or be a better business person or be a better manager and all those things. Those things are good, I think, but um, I think it's important to engage your mind on maybe more interesting questions as well. And kind of, and I think it'll it gives you a broader perspective on what you're up to because it's important that you know why you're a business person, what value you're bringing by being one, those sorts of things I think are important. It helps you make sense of your own life so you can then do a better job at it. At yeah, it. and gives you some purpose. And exactly. Yeah. What's it helps your... you know what not to do. You know, I mean, uh, how to not be a bad person, you know, is good too. So Yeah. Well, Nathan, we mentioned earlier on the podcast uh, and a few times now about your band, Band Marino. And I like to end every episode of the Agents of Innovation podcast with a song so we're going to do that in a moment, but I just also want to thank you for being on the episode and also remind our listeners, uh, we're going to put a blog post up about this episode at the website agentsofinnovation.org. Uh, we have an archive there of all the different episodes and all the different guests we've had on. So it's really building up, really some great stories. But also what I do is we follow, um, so we have social media platforms for Agents of Innovation, uh, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. And so we're going to follow you and Anna and Rifle Paper Company on all those platforms. And what we do over time is we also, uh, a year from now, we'll still be retweeting things or liking things from uh, that so that our listeners can see and also continue to follow your work. Uh, but for those that aren't familiar with Rifle Paper Company, uh, can you tell us the website? It's just riflepaperco.com. Riflepaperco.com. And I know you've got all the Instagrams and Twitter and all these sorts of things that people can follow uh, so and find you on, uh, but the but now we're going to hear a song from Band Marino, and this is a previously unreleased song. <laughs> yeah, so tell this, me about it. So this is a song. This is so when I quit the band to start the business with Anna, uh, we were actually recording an album, and we uh, we kind of were. I don't know. We were sixty seventy percent of the way done when we quit. So I kind of feel bad about it. It uh, every. Every few months, I kind of wake up thinking, "Oh man, I should go back and finish that." But it's it's not as easy as it sounds. But where are this, your bandmates? Yeah, what, what do you, what, you mean? Where are they now? Well, different places. Okay, uh, there actually many of them are still here in Orlando, but they're all up to different things. Well, maybe we can have a reunion. Uh, I heard I there mean, was a reunion a few years ago. No, Is that right? No, no. Okay, no, that's I don't know where you're getting that. <laughs> but anyhow, so uh, so this is one of the tracks that we never finished. It says, I belong to you. Yeah. But it was a, but it was like the only track we actually did vocals for. So it's the most presentable one to listen to because there's, there's actually vocals on it. So, well, (laughs) I didn't know you then. And, um, so when you told me later, I don't know, it was probably, I don't know when it was, you told me that you were in a band. Uh And then I actually, now that I've lived in Orlando the last three years and every so often, um, I will actually hear this band Marino reference. Somebody somewhere, I'll be somewhere like, oh yeah, he was in that band Marino, um, or <laughs> or something. And I, I just kind of jump when somebody tell, says that because I'm like, what? Um, so people remember you must have had uh, some some following locally here. Um, you know, maybe it wasn't quite the Matchbox Twenty level or the Backstreet Boys, but Orlando <laughs> does have some great musical talent, including Band Marino. 
um, which Nathan Bond was the lead singer of, and you're going to hear him now. So thank you, Nathan, for being part of the Agents of Innovation podcast. Thanks. Glad to be here.